0: Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching with TBA rabbinic intern Joshua
1: Jacobs. I titled this text study, People Talking Without Speaking, because I wanted to talk about the the Tower of Babel. And as I was reading it this time around and reading through the commentary, I was thinking about the sounds of silence and, and that lyric, uh, people talking without speaking. So I'm curious if that's invoked for you, uh, as we read through this, I'm, I'm curious, obviously to hear your thoughts. Um, the specific verse that I wanted to focus in on, uh, so, right. So Noah, we start with the flood. Um, we, we all know the story, the the flood wipes out humanity, Noah and his family are spared and uh, start anew. And shortly after that, we come to the story of the Tower of Babel, which is a—it's very complicated. Um, but in a basic sense, we have people come together to build a tower. And, and as a kid, I always learned that this was a major act of rebellion. It was a coup against God. And interestingly, it doesn't really say that specifically in the shot of the text. It, it doesn't say what their intentions were, but we often don't get the inner monologues that go on within the characters, but point being, there's a lot of different ways to look at what's going on here. But one thing that really I, I want to seize on is from Genesis, from Bereshit eleven one, and it says, everyone on earth had the same language and the same words. Bahi, safa udvarim achadim. And I think if you're like me, the, the, the way that I was taught the Tower of Babel is that because what we do when our language is unified is we try to build a tower to overthrow God, God comes down to, to confound our language and disperse us across the world so that we would never come together, be able to come together again in that way uh, to become one group mind, one group think and act in an evil manner. Um, but, but this specific idea... Of, of the language being the same. Uh, the mehashiloach, the, uh, the Ishpitzer Rebbe, seizes on the word that's used, which is safa, language. And he says, safa is written, but lashon isn't written. That's another word for, for language, right? Because the essence of lashon, he argues, is holy tongue, which we understand is Hebrew. So because the holy tongue is what is stamped in the heart and it flows from the root of life, which, a.k.a. God. I apologize to do it this way, um, interrupting it, but I, I think in order to retain chunk by chunk is, is most helpful. So the Ishpitzer Rebbe is a Hasidic master and calling on a Kabbalistic understanding here. Uh, The root of life God is the root of life So for for the Ishbitzer and other Kabbalists The holy language, Hebrew God used Hebrew to create the world We just saw this in Bereshit God using words to create the world And so in Hasidic thought And in Kabbalah Hebrew is, is irreplaceable As a very holy language That has a unique power So the commentator is saying Okay the is saying it, the Lashon is used, holy tongue, because Hebrew flows from the heart and from the root of life, from God. So I think it's a very beautiful way to look at Hebrew. <laughs> but then he doubles down on a sort of superiority of Hebrew versus other languages. He says, and the rest of the languages are called, quote, stammered language. And he uses an Isaiah proof text where that stammered language is, is used. So basically, Lashona Kodesh, Hebrew, flows from the heart, uh, has God in it, and great power and import, and other languages, not as much. These other languages do not have the root of life, God, in their heart because wisdom is in the heart. So again, it seems to be a knock at other languages, which don't have wisdom, aren't, anyway, so on and so forth. And the generation of the Tower of Babel, even though they spoke the holy language, the same language, nevertheless, it did not have the root of life in it. And they spoke it insincerely, like babbling and chirping of birds and other animals. I'm going to stop here. We're not totally done with this Ishpritzer commentary, but I just want to pause and get feedback and thoughts on, on what he's saying. Do you, do you agree with what he's saying? How does this tie into our, our understanding of the story and what these people were doing in building the tower? Or at least what that, what that experience was like to be among them. Feel free, you can just unmute yourself or uh, jump right in.
0: I to say it was nice that the, 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 the differentiation between communication and, and God's language, which I thought was a nice way of looking at it.
1: Yeah, right, to see Hebrew as literally containing God in it. Um, and, and if you take a step back, right, the power of language, that even if this specifically is referring to Hebrew, but wouldn't it be great if we always had a relationship to language that God is in our language and the power of words to create or to destroy. So, I, I, yes, I think that's a beautiful comment on, on Hebrew and also language in general. Any other thoughts on on what the Ischbitzer, on any of this, or on what he's saying about the nature, the dynamic of the people building the tower? Speaking uh, the same language, but go ahead, yeah. Well, just, um, just really about the text, but noticing that the word... Divarim De- words are differentiated from the language so kind of, Right, thank okay, I kind of wonder why is that <laughs> Okay, so bringing in Dvarim, right So if I'm understanding you correctly The Ishpots are saying Sefa and not Lashon But what about Dvarim also Is that right? Like that's another word for Yeah, well well, often just that, that the, the sentence itself Differentiates between the two Or at least mentions the two uh, Right, right, right Right, uh, the same language and the same words Right. So I think there's a whole, you could do all the more commentary on Devarim and what that, and the the significance of that. Really interesting. I'll, I'll show my cards right here. The reason I'm, I'm bringing this text is that I think right now we're all experiencing this where in our own circles of friends, or, or if you remove out in other circles, we might be speaking the same language, but it sure doesn't feel that way, that we're failing to communicate with one another. And I think you could go political with it, but you don't have to, right? Certainly in in, in political discourse, it seems that we're more polarized than ever and unable to talk to each other, but in our own lives as well. I just think it, it, times right now seem so polarized that we might be speaking the same language, but we're not communicating with one another, right? People talking without speaking. And I think it's beautiful to to try to, Recapture that relationship with language that understands God in it, and and to try to to see the divine in others and be able to come together and communicate in a more effective manner again. That's sort of what jumped out at me when I was reading this. I'll finish off uh, this comment and then open up for more thoughts. So too, with regard to the subject of the snake, he's referring now to uh, Garden of Eden and the snake. The commentators had trouble with why we don't find, in, in God's cursing the snake, that God took away its language. But in truth, the snake didn't have a language to begin with, since after it spoke Lashon Hara, spoke ill against its creator. And understand this. So that's, that's the comment there. Um, any, any immediate, um, before I, I try to give a little bit more framing or context, any thoughts on what, what, what's being added by bringing up the snake and the snake who, who spoke to Eve to eat the apple and in in doing so, we know how that story goes, but this idea of when God curses the snake, God doesn't take its language away, right? It says that you'll, you'll crawl on your belly and eat dust and, you know, bite the heel and be stepped on and, and, but it does but God didn't take the language away. Um, any thoughts on where, how that ties into what's being said or what this, what's being said about language and the nature of communication? And I also know, Marshall, just given our conversations, I know how much you love and are a master of the Hebrew language. And I, and I wonder if this resonates with you as this sort of God in the language. And and specifically, I mean, what I, what I think is being said here is that they didn't see the divinity in their words or in each other. And once, once you fail to see the divinity in others, you've lost the ability to communicate with one another. Even if you're speaking Lashona Kodesh, which, which is this holy set-apart language, or any language, if you're speaking the same language, it still falls apart when we, when we lose that connection to God or, or fail to see others' connection to God or the holy or to each other at that. Do people agree? Do people disagree? And and how do how do you see this in your own lives playing out? Do you feel you've you've been unable to communicate with people in your lives? I mean, I, I think it's certainly true. People can be communicating and not really, you know, holding each other in reverence and or, or or understanding, even just basic empathy, sometimes. Right. Often, like planning our next the thing that we're going to say and not actually actively listening and. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I think empathy is is key. And I think it's something that as much as we, I mean, we've heard it a million times be empathetic, but it's very hard to actually play out and to to hone that skill and to actually try to not see, imagine what it would be like if we were in another person's shoes, but imagine what it's like to be that, that person in their shoes. Absolutely.
2: Well, I, you know, I, uh, I guess I never thought about the difference between Lachon and uh, Safa. But um, I am fascinated by uh, a comment that I found in the Steinsaltz commentary to this particular verse. And it states the following. And again, this is on the verse <laughs> by Hichol Haaretz Safa Echat Udvarim Achadim. The entire earth was of one language and of common words. That is a similar discourse, he says. People could talk to each other about any topic as they knew each other and came from comparable backgrounds. They were all descendants of Noah. There were still no major linguistic or cultural differences that could create divisions among the peoples. All the world's inhabitants constitute a single unit. Mm-hmm. But there's no element, no reference here to any type of belief at all. This, everything seemed to be transactional. Mm. And maybe that's what the Ishpotser is, is referring to here. It says It doesn't say one, one tongue, right? It says
1: just one, one language. Interesting. Thank you for bringing that. So, so this idea of what their shared context was, and the fact what I hear, what I heard from what you were saying is this lack of diversity, whether of, of experience, of belief, of idea. It doesn't mention belief, right? So we
2: no, no mention of belief at all. You
1: know. Right. So I think that's interesting. I think there's. There there might be this idyllic idea of all coming together as one. But then I think there's also the real danger and loss of not having diversity of of thought, experience, background, idea, language. Right? That and I think that's that's the idea here, that when we all are it's sort of this warning against fascism almost, right? This when everybody can come together so easily and just become meld and and build this tower to overthrow God as opposed to what happens when we are able to communicate and speak to each other from places of diversity, diverse experience and thought and beliefs. Um, So I want to move on to our next text, which also talks about the construction of something, but in a much different way. This is um, from Midrash Tanchuma, Uh, from Noah. And it goes off of the same verse, and the whole earth was of one language. But instead of talking about the construction of the Tower of Babel, it talks about the construction of an Eruv, which I think immediately is interesting because the Tower of Babel was a very vertical structure, trying to, uh, in an egomaniacal way, show our own strength and might. And in that way, pretty individualistic too. It's, it's, communal, that it was a communal project, but they're speaking without talking, right? So, and like you said, it's transactional. It really isn't a, a, a communal in any way, whereas the Eruv is entirely communal. It's not a structure up towards the heavens. It's, a, it's, in, it's encapsulating of community. It's more horizontal than it is vertical. Um, so Midrash Tanchuma says, Rabbi Jacob or Yaakov, the son of Rabbi Aha, asked Rabbi Abahu whether it was necessary to place an Eruv in an area having a common courtyard if others had previously placed one there. So we, just, we have a halachic question about an Eruv. If you, if you already have one in a courtyard, you need to put another one in the courtyard. And he replied, the school of Shammai states that he must do so, while the school of Hillel maintains that it is not necessary. So classic, the two schools are at odds. The law is in accordance with the opinion of the school of Hillel. Also, not surprising. Rabbi Yahushua, the son of Levi, said, they instituted the practice of placing an eruv in an area with the common courtyard anyway, only to advance the cause of peace. Okay, so even though they decided you, you don't need to do it, they went with Hillel, you don't need to make an eruv in that courtyard, Rabbi Yaakov is saying, well, we do it anyway for the sake of peace. Okay, how so? What's he talking about? How does it achieve that goal? If a woman sends her son to deposit the Eruf — so I think that can mean many things, but basically maybe put a, da- a dish of food there. Anyway, the son is sent out to enact the eruv, to make it um, up and running. And her neighbor is kind to him and kisses him. His mother will undoubtedly say to herself, truly, she must love him. And she in turn will become fond of the woman who loves her son, no matter how she felt toward her previously. Hence, you find that peace prevails between them because of the eruv. Okay, I'm going to pause there. It's, it's. There's one more um, part of this, but reflections on that, on, on uh, that little image that's invoked, and how the eruv is achieving peace here. What, what's being said, and um, how does it strike you? And also, I, I want to add, how, how does this tie into language, our our major theme here? Larry, I think, are you uh, still muted?
0: Yeah, I'm muted. I, I got nothing here in terms of this particular commentary. Um, my mind is going in a completely different direction, which is which is not really re- resonating with either of the commentaries.
1: That's okay. What's on your mind?
0: Well, I mean, the story itself is a shot um, fable that we borrowed from other cultures, and one has to then wonder why we, you know what what the, what the purpose is um, and the first commentary talked about the superiority of our language and the superiority of our culture mm-hmm. and be able to express ideas that can 't be expressed in in other in other cultures and other languages. We see today that there are it 's commonly understood i think i 'm not a linguist at all that there are certain ideas and thoughts that are embedded in language. So language sort of embeds culture, embeds embeds even philosophy. Um, I've commented many times that concepts of God are embedded in language so that when we go back and forth between English and Hebrew in translation, we misuse the, the names for God and the language for God and that leads us, I, I think, in an in, in um, incorrect way. Mm-hmm. In, in, modern, in, in conversation with different people today, we, we engage in what's called code shifting. Mm-hmm. If I understand code shifting, it means that you are speaking in one language to one group of people who understand something in one way, and you suddenly switch to another code. It can be in the same language or it can be a different language. The example I'll use, which annoys my family to know or my relatives to no end is when we switch to Hebrew or to a Hebrew word for something that we think the Hebrew word captures much better than English and members of my family not speaking Hebrew well enough say speak English you know why don't you right but we we all do that by using words like um, I don't know um, or something like that which doesn't really mean all honor to you or whatever it happens to happens to be So, it it seems to me that this story here um, has it kind of backwards about people speaking one language and then making them speak different languages. Languages actually developed, if I'm not mistaken, again, I'm not a linguist, some languages developed um, independently in different places and other languages were offshoots of that particular language. Mm-hmm. And that's about as much as my knowledge takes me. There are Indo-European languages, and then there are the languages that come from Chinese, and you will get the sort of weird things. I'm, I've been told, I don't speak them, that um, Hungarian and Finnish are closely related, even though geographically, they're not closely re- related at all. Mm-hmm. And, and linguists don't quite understand why that is. Mm-hmm. So the question about whether... We were all one people who understood each other perfectly, and then we began to split apart and break apart, or whether we are all coming from different places, have different thoughts and cultures and philosophies, and those languages don't merge at all, are two different ways of, I think, looking at language and how people relate to each other. Mm. Where one goes with that, I'm not really sure.
1: (laughs) No, thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. And I actually think it's, it's very much on... It's a little after 640. Okay, great. Thank you so much. I think it's, it actually, uh, despite uh, uh, your feeling, it's totally out of there. I, I think it actually is, is right on target because, like you said, there are certain things that, that only a specific language can capture, and it's lost in translation. And, and I also think, though, that there are some things that transcend language. And, and that's what spoke to me about this text, where you have this image of the two women, the neighbors, looking at each other from across the fence or, or whatever and through a courtyard, and nothing needs to be said, but so much is communicated in the neighbor hugging and kissing her, her son that, that ties them and bonds them, binds them together, uh, no matter what their previous history or, or, or um, arguments may have been in the past.
0: Can I just say one more thing? Please. Um, I... I, I my point of view is if you're reading Hebrew psalms, for example, you, even if you don't understand the Hebrew, you should hear the psalms spoken in Hebrew. Mm-hmm. And I'll relate that to do any of you listen to music in other languages? For example, a lot of people will say, I think it's true, that the Portuguese in Brazilian music is beautiful. They like not just the music, they like the language. The sound of the language is very soft. And has a lot of sh-, 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 SH sounds and things like that. And even if they don't understand it, they enjoy listening to the music in a different language. You may enjoy listening to Hebrew songs, even if you don't understand the Hebrew words. Mm-hmm. So the language itself is conveying something, the music of the language itself, as opposed to the
1: meaning of the words. And that's right. also a form of communication. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's a even when it's not the specific example of music. I think there is a musicality to language, and it, when you translate it, it, you just don't always you miss. There's there's always going to be things that's missed. Um, absolutely. Um, and I think that's one of the joys of reading of of Hebrew of the Torah being read out loud and and in Hebrew. Even if you don't, you know, you have the translation, which I I think goes a very long way. Um, but but still, there's something about hearing it out loud um, in, in Hebrew. Um, So I just want to conclude on one thought, which is that with the Tower of Babel, there are a lot of ways to look at it. One way, though, is that this is coming right after the flood. So why else would you... Certainly you might build a large tower up to the heavens because you want to overthrow God, and I think that is the common accepted interpretation. But it could also be, hey, if this happens again, we need something high up (laughs) where you can be safe, right? So it's, it's it's sort of a less negative way to look at that. And then God scattering them, you could look at it as punishment for, for trying to overthrow God, or you could look at it as, again, not this negative punishment, but as God who values diversity of, of thought, of experience, of we, we can't have people who are all one way. We, we, we need to have, even if you're, we need those different languages. Even if you miss the, if you're not speaking the same language, like this story of, of the neighbor hugging her son, there's so much that's communicated on a human level um, when you're not in the same place, but when you're neighbors, but, but when, you, when you're scattered, but together by an Eruv, whether that's literal or metaphorical. So I, I just want to end on that, that in a time where I think we're really struggling to be able to talk to one another, to to try to find a way, you mentioned empathy, right? To try to access, access that within ourselves, uh, to recognize the divinity in others, so that we can continue to, to not just uh, uh, talk to each other, not speak to each other, but but to connect and and um, to relate. Uh, so, thank you all for contributing to the. Yeah, Marshall, you have something.
2: I just want to add one more thing, if I may. I was. Um, I just happened to pull up the Ishpitzur in my volume that I had, and I cause I was I was confused by a certain word that you use there, Neil Ag. Uh, it says that uh, ain't ain This is referring to the word safa, mm-hmm. and uh, it, uh, it refers to like madam game, sort of like uh, speaking incorrect language, sort of uh, muttering. And it says, when you have that situation, there's no Bina, there's no understanding at all. There's right. no, there's no wisdom. Mm-hmm. And what it's saying, I think the religious perspective is that religious traditions have tremendous wisdom in it. Whereas these people here were lacking that particular type of wisdom. So hmm. Maybe that was the, the focus of the ishwitzer's uh, statement.
1: I think so because the quote from Isaiah that he pulls from is sort of about uh, the Jews in diaspora and, and that sort of dynamic. So I do think that it's, it's speaking to what's so unique about the, the Hebrew language. Thank you for, for bringing that.
0: You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Betham, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Beth-Om Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.